Welcome back to Two Crees in a Pod. Today we are incredibly excited to have Mr. Aaron Paquette uh, join us for an episode. Um, Aaron, we want to open it up that uh, for you to introduce yourself in whichever way you would like, and then we will. Uh, we have lots of questions for you, Aaron. All right. Well, there's. I mean, there's not much to say. My name is Aaron Paquette. Uh, I'm an artist, an author. Um, public speaker, and right now I'm uh, a politician, and I represent the northeast corner of Edmonton, which is called Ward 4, but in the next election, this upcoming election, is going to be called Ward Dene, and uh, I'm really excited about that. I think it's very cool, and uh, whenever I see these kinds of introductions, I always remember being a kid, and uh, the rare times we got to watch The Muppet Show, and when Kermit the Frog would introduce someone, his arms would be like this, hey! and wiggle all around. So I wish that you had done that, but you didn't. But we're gonna do it for the next one, even if they don't okay. understand. And then everyone starts doing it. <laughs> awesome! And I heard you um, mention that uh, this ward is called the Dene Ward, and I want to acknowledge uh, that both uh, the city of Edmonton. And uh, my friend and co-host here, uh, Terry Sungeons, were involved in uh, renaming the wards in the city. And so I just want to acknowledge that of all the hard work it took uh, for you, Terry, and, and the team that you worked with, and then also the acknowledgement from uh, the city of Edmonton. So congratulations on that. So we're in the Dene Ward right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Awesome. So I have a question for you first, Erin. Um, so like you mentioned in your introduction, you are a author, you're an artist, uh, a speaker, someone who uh, from, and again, I remember uh, before you were family, <laughs> before you were family, I remember following Stalking your art. You. <laughs> I remember following you, literally. Yeah, I, was. I was wondering all the time, like, what, what's that white car? <laughs> Don't tell Clarice. Um, but I remember following your art and, and I remember following your, your story and your journey. And so I would love to hear uh, if you would like to share with our listeners, how did you and art or I'm trying to frame the question because I know that there's there has to be some sort of meeting of the gift that you had or the discovery of the gift that you had uh, to paint to create. Um, and you do incredible art if if folks have not seen Aaron's work, it is all over our city. And uh, it's in my, one of my daughter's schools. Erin's um, art is phenomenal. And so I just want to hear more about how, how did you discover that gift? Um, well, if you're really asking this question, you sh- I should warn you that I'm going to go off. Okay, go off. Pop okay. off, Erin. <laughs> Pop off. Okay, so um, I started really early. Um, as, long, as, as early as I can remember, I was had a pencil in my hand and I was drawing. Um, I would even like... Uh, you know, when there was no paper or anything and I knew I couldn't write on the walls anymore, I would take the clothes out of dresser drawers and draw at the bottom of the drawers, just anything that I could get my hands on. Um, and uh, when I was uh, quite young, my my mom and my father, they split up. You know, money was tight. They were young students. You know, the stress and pressure, like a lot of families, they split up. And uh, after my father left, I remember going down into the basement and he had left some things behind, and one of them was uh, this painting. And it was of some braves who were, uh, you know, wearing some hide and sneaking up on some animals, right? 
And I remember when I got close to that painting, um, you couldn't see the image anymore. It was just a whole bunch of different brushstrokes and it mm -hmm. didn't make any sense. And it's only when you backed away that those brushstrokes would come together and you could see what was there. And um, as I reflected on that over my life, I, I started to realize that isn't that kind of what life is? Um, when you're right in the middle of it, you, you see like a stroke of red for anger or a stroke of blue for sadness or a stroke of pink for joy or whatever it is. But when you're in it, all you see is that is that brushstroke. Hmm. But it's only when you can back up and you can take a look at the whole thing that you see what sort of image is being created. Hmm. And that's sort of our lives. Mm -hmm. And uh, so that really helped me in my life to have art as a touchstone. And, uh, you know, one of the things that, you know, I was a really good student. So I thought maybe I would go into science or medicine, but at the same time, I didn't see anyone like me in those fields. And I didn't think there was a door open for me and I didn't even bother. So thank goodness I had art as well in order to explore my intellectual and creative uh, side of myself. Um, and put all of that, um, you know, desire to create something great in the world into my artwork and take another path. Um, you know, nowadays it's a lot different for youth and hopefully they see themselves reflected in positions of power, just like, um, you know, we've got Dr. James McCulkus, for example, who's local. And, uh, you know, I'm proud to say that as, uh, as an indigenous uh, city councilor, the first uh, actual Cree councilor Mm -hmm. uh, ever in the history of the city of Edmonton that young people can, can say, well, maybe there is a place for me there. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I'll finish up this thought by saying, you know, one, one of the things that I think about a lot in my work, um, not just as an artist, but as a uh, political representative is that we have this world that for a lot of people doesn't seem to function well, and it creates a lot of anger and frustration. And I think, you know, what we need is more people who are willing to create in these positions of power, because we have been endowed with all of this power to create every single person. And if this is the world we made, you know, maybe we can do something better. If we did it intentionally, if we did it with empathy, if we did it with balance, what could we actually create out of this world? Hmm. And uh, the thing that holds us back, of course, is trauma and the fact that we inflict trauma on each other constantly and power structures inflict trauma on the people and uh, economics inflict trauma and uh, generations have trauma to, to process. And when everyone is hurting, um, if we're not conscious of it, we end up creating more hurt. And so mm -hmm. my goal and my work is how do we reverse that trend and start creating a world that we actually want? Mm -hmm. there's a lot of fear around that too and if you could remind me of the louis riel quote uh yeah. in relation to uh folks who are artists well louis riel said my people will sleep for a hundred years and when they awaken it will be the artists who give them their spirit back mm -hmm. and i reflected on that quote a lot over my life and what I realized is that we're all artists. We will all give each other our spirit back. Mm -hmm. 
And we'll do that when we step into our power because our power is generative. Our power is to create something new in this mm -hmm. world. That's what, who we are and it's why we exist. And so if someone like me, if I'm writing or I'm painting or I'm working on bylaws or, you know, drafting legislation, or if, uh, if I'm, if I'm someone who dances or does beadwork, or if I sew or I sing, or I just create a space where people feel safe and mm -hmm. they feel secure and they feel warm and <clears throat> strong and courageous. Every moment is a moment of creation mm -hmm. and we are all creators. We're all artists. And uh, individually, we may look like that brush broke, but when you pull back, you can see the whole picture mm -hmm. and we're all part of that. I like that. That's nice. So one of the, um, you said dancer, Aaron's a dancer <laughs> and he was just rapping for us before, before we started recording, we should have recorded a little bit earlier, but he was throwing out some, <laughs> spitting some lyrics. <laughs> Yeah, I'm not gonna rap right now. <laughs> Is that gonna live. rap on your... <laughs> Um But one of the things that you know, you know, again, I followed Aaron's art for for quite a few years. But you've also written a book. Mm -hmm. um, yep. Want to talk a bit about that book, and then and then maybe flow into how you got into politics. How do you go from, you know, doing all this art and then, you know, becoming an author and writing an amazing book and then going into politics? Well, so the book came out of uh, working with youth. And so I was uh, working as a consultant for um, Albert Education, Northwest Territories Education. And so I was going out to all sorts of different um, communities. And sometimes the work was uh, community reconciliation. So, for example, schools couldn't uh, get parents even to, to enter the doorway of the school, right? Because mm -hmm. of that breakdown between community and, and institution. Of yeah. course, I'm talking about Indigenous communities right. and how you solve those issues. And sometimes it was just working with youth directly. And I remember always asking every group that I uh, worked with, how many of you read? How many of you are readers? And only a few people would put up their hands. And uh, I would say, so what's what's the barrier? And they would say, oh, I don't know, it's boring, or, uh, you know, the stories don't really tell my story. And if mm. it does, it's usually really depressing. Like, I, look, I already live on the res. I know what it's like. I don't mm -hmm. need a book about it. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, I thought, okay, sure. And um, I remember this one kid uh, said, well, I read, but, you know, I don't like the stories when it has uh, indigenous kids in it. Cause like the last one I read the, you know, the boy, he turns into a wolf and he's really cool, but he doesn't get the girl, the, the white vampire guy gets her. <laughs> it's like, Oh, so you read twilight. Dude? And, it turned real red. and uh, I was like, no, no, it's cool. But it led me to understand that, uh, you know, there's, there's sort of like a, there was a, um, a market for poverty. And, uh, you mm. know, I thought, can we like flip the script on this? Yeah. And so I decided to write a story that had mostly uh, indigenous characters. And they weren't, I mean, they weren't suffering more than anyone else would suffer in their life. Hmm. And they were 
strong in family. And the story wasn't about them being indigenous. The story was about them having an adventure, just like anyone would have an adventure mm-hmm. and overcoming odds, like anyone would overcome odds. And um, I wrote it and then I thought, ah, whatever. And I put it in a drawer. And uh, the only ones who read it were like family and a couple of friends. And I left in that drawer for about a year and uh, I wasn't going to do anything with it. But one day I was on Facebook and Richard Wagamese uh, <laughs> said, hey, any of my friends out there ever written anything but never did anything with it? And I was like, well, yeah, me. And he said, okay, I want you to write a synopsis of the main character, uh, the first chapter of the book itself. And I Googled up synopsis. And, uh, <laughs> synopsis and, meaning. <laughs> yeah. I was like, oh, it's like a summary. Okay. I might need to say that real fancy. <laughs> so then uh, so I did that, sent it to him. And he said, I said, so what are you going to do with it? He said, nothing. But what you're going to do with it now is send it to 40 publishers, get rejected 40 times, and uh, it'll make you a better writer. I was like, okay. So... Um, I researched all these different publishing places and I saw Kegadon's press and uh, I was like, this is, I love this press. Like they, they focus on indigenous uh, creators and it's indigenous owned and it's owned by women. So that would be the top of my list. So I'll start there and I'll circle back in a year and hopefully with a better book and they'll publish it. So I sent it to them and uh, sure enough, they wrote back and they're like, yeah, you know, thanks for your submission. Great book, yada, yada, yada. Um, where do we, where do we send the contract? <laughs> and I was like blown away and <laughs> like a little bit depressed a little bit because, I, uh, I thought, darn, there goes my story for kids about how I persevered. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, so they, they said they'd published the book. We got it already. And um, before it even came out, it sold out the first printing. Uh, then it sold out the second, third, within six weeks, it had sold out the fourth printing. And uh, right now it's on its 11th printing. And it has also won an award and it's been a bestseller and it's taught in universities and schools across Canada and North America. Mm-hmm. And this is a book that I thought no one would care about that I left in a drawer for a year. And uh, it took someone, it took a friend mm. to say, hey, what do you got in your drawer? Not drawers, <laughs> guys. No. I said, what, what do you got in your drawer? What are you hiding mm. that uh, you just thought was of value to the world? Mm. And uh, because of that encouragement, I, I put it out there and that's what happened. And you know, I'm not saying, oh, you know, award-winning best and all that stuff to brag. I'm saying, like, mm-hmm. I didn't even realize that I had something people would care about. Mm-hmm. And isn't that true for all of us? Mm-hmm. So what are you hiding? <laughs> In oh. my drawers? <laughs> Open that drawer. <laughs> no, drawers. <laughs> I'll show you. I'll show people what I'm hiding. Jeez. Real creep podcast. <laughs> In my drawers. <laughs> Hiding in your drawers. <laughs> oh god! <laughs> I am not going to comment on. No, no, <laughs> you're going to go into a rabbit hole. <laughs> I want to make one comment, and I—it th- was a powerful comment. You said there's a market for poverty. Yes, 
And uh, right when you said that, I had some like fireworks go off in my head. And I think that when you said that, it reminded me of of writing, but research and how mm-hmm. there historically has been, you know, shirt grants and dollars, big amounts of dollars. And I talked and you gave me a new language because I talked to my students about that, about strengths-based and really ensuring that, you know, strengths-based is at the forefront of your practice, that it's a lifestyle. It's not a skill. It's a lifestyle that you live. You walk in and you see people from their strength first. And then, yes, of course, we have to look at, you know, some of the challenges and so on. Of course we do. But that market for poverty is what social work has been built on. It's been built on a market for poverty. And so thank you for giving me, me that language because that really helps me kind of make sense of things in my mind. So I, I just thank you for that, Erin. That's that was pretty powerful. Yeah. Well it's and it's a real concern because we've got all of these organizations who are trying to do good good work, mm-hmm. but in the back of their minds they're in competition with each other for funding. Mm-hmm. And then so what they do is they have all these services that overlap mm-hmm. and they're all offering these duplication of services. Mm-hmm. And in the end that's not the best use of our resources. And it's not the way to solve the issues, Mm -hmm. right? And then there's like sort of this part where no one wants to talk about it. um, But there's this underlying maybe fear that if we solve these problems, that that person or that organization may be out of a job. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right? And so, you know, and that's something that we've got to figure out. And that's sort of uh, one of the things we look at on a governmental level. And we're actually exploring that right now. Like how there, we spend about $7 billion a year provincially on managing uh, poverty and social illness, basically. $7 billion a year. And it's only getting worse. Mm-hmm. So obviously we need a different way, a different philosophy. <clears throat> um, and then there's uh, this other issue of you know, in Canada, where, how do we see this? And I know that, you know, in the 60s, it was profitable for the government to take Indigenous children and farm them out, sell them off. Uh And they made a lot of money doing Uh that. And they used poverty as an excuse for doing it. Yes. So they made money by... um, creating situations of poverty and then capitalizing on those situations of poverty Mm -hmm. and not a lot has actually changed we've just changed the forms the way that that is expressed and so that's the other concern the capitalization here and uh if you have a market you know then you're going to create the conditions to continue to grow that market exactly so Mm -hmm. and that's those are the things that people don't like to talk about but we have to face those things if we want to change them. Yeah. <clears throat> just for our listeners, Erin, um, do you want to just share the name of your book and where it's available for purchase? Oh, sure. It's called Light Finder, and it's an all-fine read, uh, book retailers near you. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, yeah, so you can get it anywhere. You can get it online. You can uh, get it from a bookstore. So what? So going back into politics, yeah. <laughs> for me, I, I, I'm just being nosy, but uh, <laughs> we know that it's election year, and I know that I, I guess for our listeners, 
you know, what are what are your hopes, you know, going into politics? What what are your hopes and and the changes that you hope to make? Yeah, so a lot of people ask like, so help me figure this out. Um artistic field, writing, painting, speaking, politics. Like why on earth did you ever go into politics? Why would you? And it's a good question. The thing that, you know, politicians never talk about is their life before politics. Mm-hmm. Um, but as an indigenous person, I was born into it. I didn't have a choice. Mm-hmm. I was born into a world where a government already decided who I was as a human being mm-hmm. and what the rules were around me being a human being that were different from the people around me. Right. I mean, we all have to follow rules, but there are, there's a specific act, the Indian act that is one of the only race based <laughs> legislations in the world yeah. that determined who I was from the moment I was born. And one of the things, you know, so no one's parents are perfect, but sometimes we have perfect stories about our parents. <laughs> and <laughs> one of them is my mom. And when I was a boy, um, after she and my dad split up, she had five kids, no money, student, what was she going to do? You know, and this is the, like the old days, right? Where there weren't a lot of supports. And so she started knocking on doors of the neighbors and we lived in a low income neighborhood, which meant that we had a, a lot of like, uh, um, indigenous folks. We had people who just were having rough times. We had immigrants, we had seniors, people with disabilities. And so she was knocking on doors and saying, listen, like, uh, why don't we pool our money? And this is before the, you had your superstores or Costco's. Why don't we pool our money and see if we can get food at, at bulk from the wholesalers. And so they trusted her. They tried and it, it worked. Mm-hmm. And then you had people from around the world saying, Hey, listen, like that's not the food that we, uh, uh make. So can we get other ingredients? And, uh, they tried and they did. And my mom said, what'd you do with that? And so we were really lucky in, in our neighborhood to have this, um, community kitchen, this sort of meeting hall, little mm-hmm. one. And uh, so every week, everyone would share a new recipe, hmm. like favorite recipe from their family. And the smell would fill the neighborhood. And uh, our job was to go knock on doors and bring out the people with disabilities, bring out the people who wouldn't normally come out and the seniors and uh, have them sit with us and eat and share stories and laugh and music. And I thought that was normal. Hmm. I thought that's what every community did. Hmm. and. Because they all knew each other, they, they started a neighborhood daycare. So then moms uh, could go to school or get a job or whatever it was. And the whole community uplifted themselves that way. It was, and so when I grew up and I saw that that's not how it worked everywhere, um, I was really sad. And I think that one of the um, reasons I got into politics is because I was tired of seeing people saying what wasn't possible instead of helping everyone see what was possible. Mm-hmm. And I get why you're talking about people's tax dollars and there's a whole like language developed to make people scared and to make people angry. And people really lean into that language and they lean into blaming other groups for other people's misfortunes. So let's say you're having a bad economy. Well, let's blame Asians or uh, let's blame indigenous people. They must get tons of handouts. I mean, we know that's true, but the public believes it, right? Um, or let's blame 
you know, this group or that group, and they, they keep people fighting, these politicians, mm-hmm. because it, it leads to them getting donations and support. So that's what really made me upset, is seeing these politicians manipulate people. Mm-hmm. And instead of encouraging their strength, um, encouraging their fear, which makes them weak. Mm. But if you say that, people get angry. Mm. Right. So whenever you come in and you say, listen, there's hope and we can change things and this is how we can do it. They immediately get angry. It's they immediately don't believe you. You're trying to sell them on something that's not true. (laughs) It's sort of like when you're uh, in the dark um, and someone opens a blind and it's bright light and it hurts. That light actually hurts and you don't want it. You want someone to close that blind again because that's real. That light that can't be real it hurts too much mm-hmm. and so that's you know we don't hear this a lot when people are talking about politics but all politics is is how human beings work together to create something better hmm. and if you have politicians who aren't showing you how to make something better by working together and leaning on the things that are good about each other hmm. then you get the world we have and i want a better world for my kids Mm-hmm. And I want a better world for everyone's kids. Mm-hmm. And I appreciate, I appreciate you saying that about, you know, that, that comment you made about um, hearing oftentimes. And I know that Amber and I have heard this oftentimes that, you know, when we, we start having these conversations within the institution or in, in the work that we do with, um, it, with different organizations is that it's not possible you know, and, and I remember, you know, my own experiences moving to Edmonton uh, four years ago and, you know, working and then having these conversations again, having worked and been in community for 10 plus years and just, you know, how these things were such issues coming into the city within our organizations and, and just as simple as smudging within the classrooms, for instance, you know, and being told that, no, you can't. That's impossible. That will never that will never happen at the university. And, you know, and then just keep having to still have those conversations, but having leaders to support us in those discussions. And I think that, you know, those are the things because oftentimes I think that we just will just take that. <laughs> I think if it was 10 years ago, I would have just taken that. Yeah, it's not possible and and, and gone with it. But, you know, Today, me and Amber like to <laughs> like to <laughs> fight, <laughs> like to challenge. Just say it, we fight. <laughs> but and you know, and and to go off that, I think like, and this is another, um, you know, when you were talking about that possibility, I, I remember reading a book. Oh my gosh, and the name is going to leave me right now. Um, but in that book, the author talked about um, decolonization has to include a language of possibility. We are never going to move through, you know, our our generations of healing, etc. If we continue to use that language of that's not possible, you know, like decolonization has to include a language of possibility. And I think that that is why, you know, even with my own kids, you know, I'll be like, well, that's possible, you know, even if it's not, that's possible. Um, But (laughs) sure. Um, But even just having that language of possibility is so important for us uh, because we have to dream our way 
out of colonization. We have to dream our way into other ways of, of knowing, doing, and being. So I appreciate um, that very much, Erin. And this is the thing. A lot of people, when you hear people talk about uh, colonization or decolonizing, they think that it, um, people who aren't Indigenous, a lot of times they think it's not for them. They think mm-hmm. that you're talking about something scary that's going to in some way impact them in a negative way. Like, uh, are, am I going to lose something if you gain something? Right. Mm-hmm. Right. And what they don't know, because we don't tell we don't teach this. It's not part of our language, but everyone is colonized. Everyone mm-hmm. needs to be in a process of decolonization mm-hmm. because we're all the inheritors of a system that was designed to break up our communities, to break up our family systems. We all live in it and we come to view it as normal. Mm-hmm. Whereas we know that our ancestors would never have lived that way. Mm-hmm. Hold a second. What do you need, little bud? Oh, you hurt your ear? Oh, did you show mom? <laughs> oh, my poor guy. Come here, I'll give you a kiss. No, it's a rash. It's a rash. It's a rash. <laughs> oh, okay. Okay. All right. All right. Love you, buddy. We parent okay. on two, Chris. So you just had to show me that you got an owie on his ear. Of course. That's important. Yeah. Okay. So anyway, the point is everyone needs to decolonize. And uh, what, and the thing is people are saying, well, what would that look like? Well, I'll tell a, a, a little story from history. And that is that um, one of the, one of the uh, um, things that was banned under the Indian Act, and you know this, is uh, potlatch and Sundance and things like that, specifically for this reason. When people like chiefs or anyone who was doing really, really well started to accumulate a lot of belongings and a lot of wealth at these ceremonies, they would give it away for the benefit of everyone Mm -hmm. because they didn't actually need all of that for their well-being and they would give it away. And and the whole community, again, would be stronger because of it. Mm -hmm. Now, if you want to destroy communities, you don't want you don't want systems like that. If you want to break communities, you want to see that wealth accumulation and that disparity increase. Mm-hmm. You want people to develop greed. Mm-hmm. You want them to 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 believe that it's okay that other people suffer. Right. You want that coldness to enter into people's hearts, and then you want to teach them. Not only is it impossible for that to change. And so that's just one of the sad parts of the world. Mm-hmm. But you also teach them that if God wanted it different, he would make it different. Yes. And what they what do those teachings do? They take away our ability to create difference, to create something better. Yeah. Yeah. And so that's in, that was intentional. And that's the world that everyone has ended up living in where we celebrate those who um, accumulate wealth, accumulate power more and more and more. And the people we don't pay attention to are those who end up benefiting more people, giving away their power, giving Mm -hmm. away their money. Right. Mm -hmm. And uh, you know, some people will be like, Oh, that's communism. Oh, you're a socialist. Capitalism is the only way to go. And, And, like whatever, you know what? All those terms, I throw them away into the dustbin of history where they belong. 
-hmm. into the dustbin of colonization where they belong. Mm -hmm. Because what I'm talking about is being an authentic human being. Mm -hmm. No person, and you were probably raised this way too. I know you were. I was raised this way, that it's shameful if you have a lot and you know that your neighbor is starving mm -hmm. and you don't help. Mm -hmm. Like you're no longer acting as a human being. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I had, a, I'll tell you this, I had an interesting uh, Twitter exchange the other day. Um, Senator Paula Simons, uh, she was talking about uh, what, what can we do? What should we do about racism? It's terrible. It's a, it's a plague on our society kind of idea. And I said, we need mental health supports. And someone said, well, you can't equate uh, racism with, uh, you know, a mental illness. And I thought, of course you can. And I said, you know, maybe we're talking about different worldviews, but mine, you know, at one framework is the, it's the medicine wheel where you have to have your, 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 in balance, your, the mental, the intellectual, the physical, the spiritual. And when it's too far out of balance, you know, the idea is to correct. And of course, you can never be in perfect balance at all times. That's just not possible. But at least this framework allows you to know when you're out of balance. Mm -hmm. And uh, a lot of people weren't understanding this. They're like, but it's not a mental illness. You know, I know lots of perfectly sane people, capable people, rational people who are also horrible racists. And I thought, what a weird thing to, to say. Like, this person is otherwise sane, except for their <laughs> insane position on racial relationships. And yet we're saying that there's no mental illness. No, there's no, like, like that it's not an issue about mental health. Right. And, you know, I think because people don't want to com compare it to something like, the, like schizophrenia or bipolar or depression. And it's not. Those are their own things. But you're not in mental health mm -hmm. when you carry hate. Right. And to say that you are boggles my mind. Mm -hmm. And but that's sort of a like that's decolonized worldviews versus colonized worldviews mm -hmm. where we are used to people being monsters and calling it rational. Mm -hmm. Yes, but that's by design. And that's the sad thing. It's by design. Yeah. And so if I could be in a position of power even if just as a city councillor, could I inject some humanity, more humanity into things? And not just performatively, not just like, oh, you know, I really believe in rights for everyone, and then do nothing about it, right. but actually do something. And uh, I'm really proud that in three and a half years, I've changed a number of things on a very fundamental level that have echoed, not only across our city, but across our province, and even impacted federal legislation. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that's just from my position as a city councillor. Yeah. Yeah. Plus, we got to fill potholes. <laughs> oh, oh God! Don't talk yeah. about. Let's talk. Let's talk about potholes. The city owes me six thousand dollars. Right. Aaron, I want a check. You, you know, need to we cut me. More potholes now than we ever have. You need to cut me a check for six grand. I need a whole new vehicle. Um. Uh, so in, in considering our listeners and, and considering the folks that, uh, again, we have a really vast audience, um, a very vast audience. Is there anything that you want to leave our very vast audience with? What are some of the things that you would like to get out into the world, Aaron? You know, 
we live in a time of of change and we're seeing a lot of dark things happening and because we're confronted with it every day on social media and things like that it starts to consume our way of thinking and the way we look at the world but imagine if you cut all that news out of your life what would the world actually look like to you it would look pretty good you know you'd have your struggles and everyone has struggles no matter what they are but if we suddenly had a month without news a month without media month without screens what would we do we'd be outside we'd be talking to our neighbors we'd be forming relationships and realizing that the people surrounding us are good people mm-hmm. and that would change things and so if that's true and it is then we know that all of these things that create fear and distrust and darkness those things aren't true do they happen yes but are they our nature and are they really reflective of our world no and so the challenge i would issue everyone is to reflect on the fact that even with governments that may make you feel hopeless and they have the power to actually change things for the worse even though you have that you also have in you the power to create anything and people are like yeah whatever anything no you have the power to create mm-hmm. anything and the more people you connect with who feel that way the more you're going to actually change the world for the better and that is a narrative we have to have people say be realistic what's realistic about always being negative and expecting the worst what's realistic about always mm-hmm. doubting people and to and being suspicious of people and what's realistic about expecting corruption mm-hmm. i think that is actually being naive being realistic is understanding that at some point someone stole your power and your belief in goodness mm-hmm. and you can get it back and you can live in that and that is being realistic was it realistic for a kid like me who grew up in severe poverty and inheriting generational trauma to say you know what one day i'm going to be an internationally recognized artist one day i'm going to have a best selling award winning book one day i'm going to um do keynote speeches and uh speak to to groups of 10,000 people or more and get paid really well for it and one day i'm going to be in politics is that realistic yes it's completely realistic and guess where the proof is right here it's it happened Mhm. Anything can ha- happen. Mm-hmm. If you let it. Mhm. It takes work. Who cares? Mhm. We're always working anyways. <laughs> <laughs> You're going to work anyway. You can either work in misery into into a ditch or you can mm-hmm. you know, work in joy into something better. Yeah. And that's the difference I think between looking at things from a quarterly uh viewpoint month to month week to week mm-hmm. uh and a generational viewpoint mm-hmm. and if you are playing the long game and you have a generational viewpoint the whole situation starts to change yeah it's just like driving a car when you learn to drive a car hopefully you were in a in a safe place but um you know just trying to drive down that road you're going back and forth and back and forth pressing on your brakes um until someone says you know what stop looking right in front of the car 
look to the distance, look to the horizon. Mm. And the instant you do that, suddenly you're driving straight down that road. And that's what it's all about. If we're always focused on the issue right in front of us, the moment right in front of us, mm. we're going to be going back and forth and slamming on the brakes and getting nowhere. Got to look at that horizon. Yeah, no, it's roads like roads like Kihuan taught me that. <laughs> Fourteen years old. That's right. They owe me money for my vehicle too. <laughs> that's uh, that's such a beautiful way I think to end this, and I think that you know again sharing that that um, you know that we all have the and I remember William Aguiar, and it, it, it takes me back to this this instructor that Amber and I both had at Blue Quills, and I always remember him telling me, and I think that it was it was when he told me you create your own happiness. Like you have the ability to create your own happiness. Like it is in your hands. And what are you going to do? And I remember after he said that to me, you know, one-on-one in class and just that has been, you know, that has stayed with me ever since. And, and knowing that I do have that ability, you know, whether we go through things or go through things or hardships that, you know, that is always, we always have that choice of, of how we are going to look at it. And so... I, uh... And you know, I know you wanted to end, but you raised you raised something really, really important. Um, my siblings and I, when we would gather together, sometimes we would tell these horrible stories about our trauma growing up. These instances, uh, and we'd be howling with laughter, <laughs> right? At how ridiculous it was, and going over this. And I remember someone I was with, like being shocked, and be like, "Why are you laughing about that? That's horrifying." <laughs> And of course it is horrifying, but that's, that's how you heal trauma. You know, every time you take a memory off the shelf and you look at it, it changes when you look at it. So by laughing and being together as siblings, when that memory got put back in, it no longer had the same pain mm. because now it was carrying that, that love. Mm. And that's how we change those stories. Mm. And that's why <laughs> things like, you know, people laugh. But that's why men should go to therapy. You know, <laughs> take those take those stories off the shelf, open them up, get a new feeling about it, and when you put it back, it's not weighing you down. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So sorry, men, but it's true. <laughs> We're not going to disagree with you. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but you know, because we all carry trauma. It's yep. not our fault, mm-hmm. but we internalize it. And when we internalize it, it doesn't stay in here, right? It comes out and it impacts those around us. Mm-hmm. And we find reasons to blame everyone around us for what happened mm-hmm. when really it's coming from here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And yeah, someone else may have actions that aren't great, but we can't control anyone else. We can only control ourselves. Mm-hmm. And so if you're not choosing to take control of that trauma by letting go of it, mm-hmm. then you're choosing to live in it and have it impact those around you and the next generation. Mm-hmm. And that's the toughest thing to, to get to, that moment where you realize it's a choice. Mm-hmm. Because a lot of people, will they let go of their power and they say, it's not my fault. These things happened to me. This is why this is my life story. Mm-hmm. And that's true. Every story is true. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so why not tell a new story that is also true? Mm-hmm. 
I like that. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you for uh, for agreeing to to be our guest. Uh, thank you for sharing your stories with us, and uh, and laughing along with us. And um, we appreciate you, and uh, and we hope that uh, that you have a wonderful evening. And uh, you know, election woo, woo, election is <laughs> happening soon. Um, but yeah, we appreciate you, Aaron. Thank you so much for being a guest um, on Two Crees in a Pod. Well, thank you. Two crees in a pod. Two crees in a pod. Two crees in a pod. Hey, Natani means. Yeah. Let's go. They pushed us to this point. Frustrations of a common man. Manifest the destiny, preach and pledge the promised land. I'm stuck between taking my journey, live with no honor. Like, what's the use of my kids? Can't taste clean water. A child born into a world, revolution's not a choice. Fighting to be heard, so we make them hear our voice. Remember ancestors' anguish, lightning in our veins. Hear it in a language when they are kitchen for the rain. I am product of people that persevere persecution. Paint me so creator sees me if I go out shooting. Experience our pain when our women disappear daily. Anxious to be angry, pacifists might hate me. Trolls on the internet constantly trying to bait me. We move in silence, cover of the night. Learning from the wolves in the forest. Tracking enemies in the woods Reincarnations of warriors riding for salvation Or are we false prophets when we submit to temptation Colonization is a hell of a drug We all seem to go crazy when we fall in love I said colonization is a hell of a drug We all seem to go crazy when we fall in love I said Two Crees in a Pod.